Welcome to the Evolution Exchange USA podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they're facing. I'm Amy Clemson from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and I help connect businesses with top tech talent. And today, I'm your host. I'm joined by Sagar Suri at Rapid7, Liz Dennett at Wood McKenzie, Matt Noop at Owl Labs, and Chitanya Panja at Sanofi. And all to discuss a topic that should be of interest to all engineering leaders. The topic today is the importance of data engineering teams to a business. So before we delve deeper into the topic, I'm gonna work our way around the room with some introductions. Shatanya, do you wanna do you wanna kick us off? Uh sure. Uh thanks, Amy. Uh really excited to be here. Uh my name is Chatanya Pandya. I uh, I'm the global head of data engineering precision oncology uh, at Sanofi. Um, I have a background in uh, computer science and bioinformatics, um, and now lead a data engineering team. Uh, I'm, I'm passionate about improving, uh, using technology to improve human health, and I'm really fortunate I'm in a role right now that allows me to do that. So yeah, really happy to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Perfect. Thanks for that. And Sagar, over to you. Yeah, Amy, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Sagar Suri. I head up data engineering for a cybersecurity company called Rapid7. Um, personally, I have over 12 years of experience working in the data space across cybersecurity and e-commerce, commercial real estate, banking. Um, kind of have done a little bit of everything in that data space. Uh, it's established and scaled a couple of global data engineering practices, led a BI team. I built out a data governance program. Um, currently at Rapid7, my organization is responsible for delivering democratized and integrated and self-service data solutions uh, to empower data customers. And um, yeah, excited to be here. Awesome. Thanks, Sagal. And Liz, over to you. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. My name is Liz Dennett, and I'm guessing unlike most guests, I am not a computer scientist by background. I actually have a, a master's and PhD in astrobiology where I worked for NASA looking at how life evolved on early Earth as a proxy for life on Mars. These days, I am a VP of data architecture and data engineering for Wood McKenzie, which is an energy company looking to transform how we power the planet. How I got there is a very interesting journey. It includes a role as a technology director as, at a startup and then a few years at AWS being a solutions architect there. So that, that probably answers the how are you here and why are you qualified to talk to us piece. Amazing. Thanks, Liz. And finally, over to Matt. Uh, thanks, Amy. Uh, so I'm Matt Knoop. Um, I currently work at Owl Labs. We make some uh, really neat equipment for hybrid and remote working. Um, in my career, I've been all over the place. I've you know, been in charge of BI functions, done those myself. Uh, I've worked in a number of different startups, brought in middleware, done integrations, brought in enterprise applications, done all sorts of stuff. And in my current role, um, in addition to kind of managing the IT operations, I oversee the uh, the BI team as well as kind of our data engineering and data integration functions. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for that, Matt. Perfect. Well, thanks for the introduction, guys. We're going to move on to discuss some specific questions and topics related to our broader topic on the importance of data engineering and data architecture to a business. So we're going to kick off with Sagar. Um, so a couple of topics that you uh, you were keen to discuss. So I want to hone in on one of them. So 
how to quantify the monetary impact of data engineering to an organization. Do you want to do you want to delve a little bit deeper into that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like this is one of the many banes of a data engineering leader's existence. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that, right? Like the data leader, uh, one of your missions is to democratize and enrich supply of data in your lake where it makes sense, where you anticipate return on that investment. Um, there's also, you know, the, the mission around increasing adoption of your data products. Um, ideally you're building those data products with the intention that they'll be reused by your data community for a multitude of unpredictable future use cases. Um, so the better you are at delivering on that mission statement, the more difficult I feel like it is to get a, a comprehensive view of the sphere of impact that you're having across your organization. So that kind of juxtaposition kind of gets difficult when you're trying to manage upwards. Um, in addition to that, you know, the data requests come usually in anticipation of an upcoming pro program, or maybe there's a tweak being made to an ML model or whatever else, right? So those requests tend to come in before the impact of that request is actually known. So I'm bringing up all of these problems and I'm going to preface just by saying I don't have a silver bullet for any of this. Um, yeah, I've seen models that sort of work where, you know, you're bringing in an ROI figure as part of your intake process, but generally that requires a PM or, or somebody in a similar type of role who is chasing down that number. Um, and generally those dollars are a guess and sometimes referring to it as a guess, I think is putting it nicely. Um, what helps me, uh, quite a bit is like building relationships with the data community. Um, so I see leaders, organizational leaders. Um, I think, I don't think that's done enough, uh, by, by data engineering leaders. Um, I think it's important to hold yourself accountable as a leader for setting up, you know, recurring meetings with your marketing leaders, your biz ops leaders, your finance leaders, even if it's just a monthly or quarterly, because it gives you a feedback loop and, and feedback's a gift, but it's also an opportunity to retro, right? We can use those channels as a, as a means to go ask, Hey, how did you use that data? What are some of the new projects you're working on? What data are you guys using? Are you guys tracking ROI against that program? And if so, what was it? So kind of building and maintaining those relationships for me personally has helped not get the full 360, but I guess we could say like the 340 or 350. Absolutely. Liz, have you got anything to, to sort of add to that? I think when I think um, you're spot on right there, I think when tackling these challenges, having a 360 view is absolutely critical. One thing from a data engineering perspective that has been very important to success of new data engineers and even those transitioning into data engineering roles is getting them as close to the business as possible. And I find that depending on where you come from, it really helps to demystify what the drivers are, what the customers ultimately want, and really shorten that cycle, which can really deliver impactful business results as opposed to just showing your JIRA board or your product board and saying, look, we've done, we have some great things planned, we're doing some good things, but to actually deliver. Absolutely. So um, yeah, some some great points from, from both of you there. Um, so I was also keen to kind of follow on from this. So something else you brought up, Sagar, was um, the impact of of not investing in a data engineering practice. So obviously massive kind of topic within the subtopic, but do you want to kind of go into a bit more detail 
on what you mean by that. Yeah, I think uh, I think there are impacts to risk. I think there's impacts to profitability, like direct impacts when you don't invest in a data engineering practice or invest enough, I think, into your data engineering practice, right? If if you're not investing in things like data ops, DevOps, right? There's low quality data coming out. There's you know, the garbage in, garbage out kind of phrase that we use. And that results in distrust, right? Can you report what, or can you trust what you're reporting on? Um, do you trust the data that you're making strategic decisions for your company on? Um, and, and there's all types of ramifications there. And then related to profitability, right? There's like this opportunity costs, I think, firstly to consider. Um, a company's data can be a goldmine, you know, being able to interact with and integrate that data unlocks so much value. And so when you're not investing in, in a data engineering program, you're kind of sitting on that goldmine and just proactively making a decision to not buy a shovel, essentially. Um, and so I think investing in tools like like a DBT, like you know all the great visualization tools out there, Amplitude, Tableau, um, which will unlock self-service, which helps with uh, your organization moving a lot quicker. You know, all that translates directly to dollars. Uh, and, and you should be smart about tooling, right? Obviously we're seeing kind of that shift towards open source. So like make the, make the right decisions. But, um, I think in the long haul, that long haul, haul that nearsightedness, um, is actually going to cost you more in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Matt, have you, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the cost, um, you know, I, I think the companies that choose to not go down these, some of these paths, particularly around like the application integration and embracing some of these tools, those are the companies that are going to get left behind. And this comes in and it shows up in a whole bunch of different ways. It shows up, but it's like, it's harder to recruit, right? Cause it's like, if you're not working with, you know, it doesn't have to be like the absolute cutting edge, but it's like, if you're not working with modern tools, like even if you want to get somebody in young or, you know, early on in their career to start, it's like, you know, you have, you have to, be like, hey, learn and earn. Here's your opportunity to learn because we won't necessarily have the budget, but it's like you can at least learn tools that will help you later in your career. So, you know, you really end up really far behind if you don't kind of embrace the tools, have those teams, have those sort of functions in place in an organization. Yeah, absolutely. And Shatanya, have you, have you got anything on top of that? No, no, I... I um... I, I echo what uh, Sagar and Matt said, um, I, and I think additionally there's sort of two additional costs that I see uh, that are um, a burden of not having a data engineering practice. Uh, the first one is you accumulate technical debt as well, um, especially from the data side as well, whereas you start creating these silos or um, uh, organizational-wide challenges, uh, which makes it harder to find data as well. Uh, so th there's this findability cost associated as well, where people are spending more time trying to locate data sets that are useful to them, um, rather than leveraging those data sets to derive business insights. Absolutely, yeah. So great points from all of you there. So I was keen to kind of circle back uh, when Matt said about the repercussions um, of kind of hiring and, and retaining talent. So it, it leads us really nicely actually into to some of Liz's 
into some of Liz's topics, uh, which I think you were quite keen to talk about sort of hiring and onboarding best practices. And I think I think this this kind of leads quite nicely into that. So do you wanna do you wanna delve into that a little bit more, Liz? Yeah. And I actually want to take a step back and talk about who is a data engineer. I have seen in the industry there's really two schools of thoughts or thought around that. And I they they tend to be, in case you are not familiar discussing these things all the time, they there tends to be a subset of these great full stack engineers that have decided later in their careers to specialize in data engineering. And there's also a group that comes at it from a much more circuitous path. We have uh, a whole bunch of people that I've had the privilege of working with over the years in that camp. Individuals who maybe are analysts for a few years and have a really high technical sophistication. Maybe they're a data modeler, but they're the kind of person that just thinks about data in ways that mere mortals do not obsess over the little tiny details. And I think even though in a broad sense, data engineers do a lot of the same functions. They build pipeline, they ensure fidelity of the data, they get it from point A to point B. The perspectives that come along board with that and how the people get into data engineering can be vastly different. That diversity, I think, ultimately is what leads to a lot of the power and the business outcomes for data engineering that we've been talking about. In terms of ensuring that once you have data engineers, you can get them onboarded and you can get them being as effective as possible. Onboarding is the most important part of any new job. I've I've had some great, truly fantastic onboarding experiences. And as a line manager, I see it as my privilege and my duty to make everyone's onboarding as smooth as possible. With that, I teed up a little bit getting as close to the customer as possible. I think that's goal number one, to see what you're making. What are you selling? Where are the customer pain points? So it's not abstract, it really is tangible. I think mentoring and having support both from other data engineers, but then from people diverse in the business. If you are coming at it from an analyst perspective, let's get you partnered up with someone that's a front end engineer or a full stack engineer so that when you're talking about the difference of dictionaries versus lists, they can explain to you why it makes sense from a software engineering perspective. Um, The third thing I have found really impactful is just career planning in general. If someone shows any interest at all in being a line manager, making sure we can kindle that and get more amazing engineers and engineering managers into the fold, but also knowing that there's a ton of ways you can continue to specialize in engineering and data engineering. You can get closer to the business, you can get closer to the technology stack and really providing tactical and tangible outcomes for for any of those future steps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the diversity within sort of within any engineering team is is so important has anybody got kind of anything to to add to that matt well i mean i think that how you end up in this sort of field can vary right like you know my background was industrial engineering which deals heavily with like processes and it was just a natural extension it's like okay well software software data is just processes right um so you know as, as this well, one question for the group here is, has anyone actually seen a resume with like a data science degree? Yes, I've seen masters in data science and analytics. Okay. So they are starting to get out. I've seen data science as, as a degree, but it's like, you know, we're at a, we're, we're at a weird spot in the, in the IT industry where it's like, we're, we're at the leading edge, right? Like this is going to be a growth industry for the next 20, 30 years. As basically everything becomes digitized, becomes like basically we're like data plumbers, right? Where we're we've got all these SaaS applications that they have to be connected, right? 
Um, and then we got to rebuild a report on what's going on with these processes that we're building and they're nice and complicated, but it's like, we're kind of at that leading edge where it's like a lot of people, like they're coming in it through all sorts of different diverse backgrounds and right. You have to understand like, okay, what's the thinking that allows someone to be successful in this industry? And it, you know, you can learn those skills from a whole bunch of different, it doesn't have to be just like, okay, I studied computer science. It's like, okay. Do they understand the concepts? Do they understand the problem? How does their mind work? So when I'm hiring, like, that's what I'm looking at. I'm not necessarily looking at like what they went to school for or any of those sort of things. It's okay. How do they, how do they handle structured problem solving? Right? Like if I give them this case of like, you know, I've got these two systems and I need this data to be synced. Like, can they think through the logical impacts of like this not working? Right. And how that might impact other systems. So. I think it's going to be really interesting to see as more people hit the market that like have studied these sort of things. It's like, okay, what's that, what, what's this industry look like in five years in terms of hire? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point actually, Matt, and I'm, I'm kind of glad you touched on it because obviously in the job that, that I'm in, um, you know, I, I see a lot of people with different backgrounds and there's a lot of companies out there and I'm, I'm glad the thought process is changing. But there is a lot of, of people out there that, like you say, will look at one degree and say it's, you know, it's got to be computer science or this, that, the other. So it's it's great to hear that that is changing from from today's leaders. Um, but Liz, have you kind of got got something to say there? I've observed an interesting phenomena where, and I come from an energy specific background, especially the energy transition space where people are emerging with analytics master's degrees. They want to jump into their Jupyter notebooks. They want to use their data science. Maybe they're keen about getting a, a machine learning model in production. They want to go there. But their start point is cleaned, munged, ready to use, analytics ready data that has high measures of data quality, which is great because if I could, if I could make API calls and get data that I trusted and didn't have to spend lots of time transforming, life would be a wonderful place. But the reality that I've seen is that's rarely, if ever, the case. And taking it the six or seven or even ten steps back to create the data pipelines, create the data lake, the data warehouse, the data marts, whatever your infrastructure look like looks like requires a ton of investment, both from the data architecture side to figure out what the flow needs to look like, but also the engineering side to build it out. And that is a dichotomy that has really been a nog and scratcher for me. Just emerging, ready to make dashboards, ready to do data science without really understanding where that comes from. I'm curious if the rest of the panelists have seen anything similar to that. Yeah, Shatanya, what, what do you kind of have to say on that? Uh, no, no, I, I, I completely agree with Liz. I, I, I've seen that in resumes and um, looking at candidates as well. The way I think about it, it's sort of uh, two axes, right? So you have technical expertise in some sort of software development or data science skills, uh, and the other axis is domain knowledge. Um, and you have folks basically on the entire spectrum on this XY plane, right? Um, and for a successful data engineering team, um, and for leaders especially, I, I think it's important to have folks um, that are a decent enough sampling of the entire XY plane. So people who have deep expertise in software skills, but also understand data uh, that they are working with very closely, because um, that is very important when you're trying to, as Matt said, create this plumbing between these SaaS applications. Absolutely, and I think the rest of the group have, have got some uh, some additions to that. So, Sagar, we're gonna we're gonna go to you first. Yeah, I love seeing all the hands raised. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, it's interesting. I think like there's also like different types of data engineers and a lot of, depending on your ecosystem, I think that, that kind of influences what you're looking for as well. Right. Like, um, there's kind of this train of thought that data engineering is a subset of software engineering. Um, I've worked at places where the data engineers were the titles of those data engineers were actually software development engineer. Um, and at a high level, like in that ecosystem, those data engineers are writing programs, they're maintaining architecture. In some cases, they're managing their own VPCs and the subnetworks within those VPCs. Um, you know, we're, I came from e-commerce before I, I came to Rapid7, and we're dealing with impressions and clicks and views where you have petabytes and more of data. You have to write your pipelines programmatically in order to transform and, and transport that information. Um, but then on the flip side, you have these other types of data engineering teams where maybe they don't manage their own architecture. They aren't dealing with those petabytes of data. Um, maybe they have investments in like extract and load tools that are uh, like out, have those out of the box connectors, like a Fivetran, for example, right? And those teams lean towards more of that analytics engineer, BI developer or type of function. So it makes a little bit less sense to try to like, state the case that that type of role is like a subset of software development. So uh, it, it's kind of like a spectrum, I feel like, depending on, on what you're, where you are, what company you work for, and like, what are the problems your, your team is trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. So keen to, to head to Max, I see your hand up there too. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know, maybe it's because I've worked at a couple startups now in a row. And, you know, I'm, I'm fairly technical and the team I build is usually pretty technical, but I think one of the things that we often overlook is like the business isn't necessarily looking for a technical thing. Like sometimes they just want like, are we going in the right direction or not? <laughs> right. And it's like, I could go crazy in terms of like the depth of that data cleansing and all that sort of stuff. But sometimes it's like, we just want to know, like, are we going in the right direction or not? And like the actual magnitude while like would be important, but it's like, no, because sometimes we're just deciding like, is there a product market fit with a particular action that we're going to take? And they don't need like, okay, a really streamlined projection of like whatever, based on some confidence interval. It's like, nope, we're going in the right direction. Thank you. We'll get back to you. And it's like, you know, it's taken a couple, you know, working for a couple of founders to have that like drilled into me of like, okay. We just need to know, like, no, this is good enough. And and technically, that's data engineering. So, um, yeah, I think it really depends on, like, okay, what business are you in? Yeah. Shatanya? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I have the exact opposite experience than Matt. So that's why I wanted to jump in. Uh, so coming from biopharma industry, where it takes $20 billion to make a new drug, Every small decision is important, right? Because if you have failures, you have really big failures. Um, so it, we uh, tend to spend a lot of time and effort curating data. <laughs> um, and, and that's why I think uh, quick and dirty works again in some businesses, but for some businesses, it, it, it is actually uh, a very big hurdle in adding value. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was great. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, we're going to move on to Chitanya's topics now. Um, so thanks, Liz, for, for that. 
Um, so Shatanya, you put some some topics forward. So one of them being um, effective data engineering is critical for leveraging advanced tools such as AI and ML to derive novel insights. Can you delve a little bit deeper into that for us? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think Sagar touched upon this um, earlier as well in the conversation. Um, so th there's um, a lot of hype, I, I would say, uh, sort of provocatively uh, around these advanced AI ML tools. Um, and everybody wants to use them um, in their business uh, to add value. Uh, but we do have that garbage in, garbage out problem, right? Uh, more so with these advanced tools because they are more black box technologies than, let's say, your traditional predictive analytics. Um, so I, I think it's important uh, for data engineering teams to be mindful of this. Um, and having data engineering teams that are competent and understand the domain well, um, so that when you're ready to leverage these tools, your data is staged appropriately, um, the provenance is ensured, uh, you also understand what the shortcomings are and what the limitations are of the models you're building. Yeah, great. So that we uh, we touched on that earlier, so I'm keen to to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely uh, echo all of that sentiment. I think I think ML and AI to an extent are like kind of rendered useless without that uh, those inputs that meet a particular standard. I think. I feel like companies realize you can only go so far in terms of the sophistication of your ML programs without that sound um, sound data foundation. Um, there was there was an article I was reading uh, recently, and it was around I think it was an analysis that someone had done around the num like the types of roles that different startups had available. I think it was specific to startups coming from like Y Combinator and there were 70% more data engineering roles uh, that those companies were hiring for versus like data science type of roles. And that makes sense, right? Like for startups, you're building a kind of a more, you're focusing more on that foundation. And then once you that base layer matures, you expand your focus and your investment on the predictive and the prescriptive. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that. Liz, have you, have you got anything to add there? I was just going to say, I don't know if, if that represents a new reality of getting more data engineers on board from the beginning, more specification with what they're labeling and actually looking for, or if it's from an increased demand from the beginning to make sure that as the startups grow and scale, they have good, clean data that could ultimately be a core part of their IP. I think Either way, it's great news because having proliferation of data engineers and having uh, elevated awareness of the functions of a data engineering capability is just good for data. And as someone who likes data, the more good data, the better. A rising tide probably really does raise all boats here. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, have you got anything to add there or do you think the guys have kind of covered everything? Well, I, I kind of see the data engineers more of like, you know, and yes, it's gotten more complicated as more things have become SaaS, but I see the, the data engineer is really kind of like the the ETL or the ELT, right? And then that data science is, okay, now that I've got this data set, what can I do to kind of infer knowledge or do something with this data that allows me to either predict or to understand where something is going? So, you know, and that's why, like, if a startup, like, I think they're making the rational decision of hiring the the data engineer, right? To do some of that ELT, ETL, move that data set around 
And then like, once you have that, otherwise, cause it's like, if you bring that person in, it's like, well, I'm expecting this clean data set and I have great understanding of all the algorithms and all the things I might be able to do with it. They're kind of wasted. <laughs> you bring them into an organization before that piece is mature. Yeah, definitely. So I think that actually leads us quite nicely into Shatanya's next uh, next topic, which is how good data engineering enables transition from reactionary to proactive business practices. So, uh, yeah, no, um, happy happy to talk about that as well. So, um, sort of my point of view is more often than not, um, and again, this this might be my personal experience as well is. Uh, from a data engineering perspective, we tend to be looped in sort of at the last moment um, where uh, these data sets are ready. Can you munch them and stage them for us uh, for a future date? Um, and it it tends to be more reactionary uh, than sort of uh, having a, a proactive role in the business. Um, and I think that that's um, important from uh, from a data engineering team perspective as well is like how early can you be involved in the process um, when you're trying to connect and collate this data um, so that you can go from this reactionary to a more proactive business practice approach. Yeah, and are you're, you're nodding along there. If <laughs> you got anything to add to that. Yeah, I just feel like I agree with what everybody's saying. Uh, but um, yeah, I've been on both sides of it. You know, I, on one side, you're, you've got like your very reactionary ecosystem like your downstream stakeholders get their cup of coffee and open up their tableau report first thing in the morning and they're more focused on like whether they can find errors in this report or whether it's like not as fresh as it's supposed to be right and in that in that kind of scenario your data team has little to no credibility and likely when it comes down to making a data-driven decision um your stakeholders may just think it's less of a hassle to just bypass the data team altogether and all of us being data people i think we know i think we all side on the same side of that decision and then on the other side you have like this happy happy world ecosystem where um the stakeholders are second guessing themselves and they look at that tableau report like is there actually an issue here right those stakeholders are getting to spend their time gleaning the insights from that report as it was intended to be used um, and so I feel like in those scenarios, you're seeing more, um, those data teams, I think are investing more in things like observability and data ops and DevOps. Um, there's like now data contracts are starting to bubble up and, and become kind of popular and as a means to reduce friction between those data producers and data consumers and help kind of protect your production environment. So, um, yeah, that too is like a, a spectrum. Like you're going to come out with your observability system and it's not going to catch everything, but, um, as you maybe miss something, you add in a check so that next time you do catch that thing. And now you're slowly like one step in the right direction of that spectrum. Yeah. Matt, have you, uh, got anything to add to that or do you agree with kind of everything Sagal says? Yeah. I don't think I really have anything to add to that one. Yeah. I agree with that. Awesome. Liz? No. <laughs> no, no it was really well stated. Good job. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, we are going to move on to some of Matt's topics now. 
So, um, Matt, you you were interested in how application integration enables effective data engineering and BI teams. Do you want to delve into that a little bit for us? Yeah. So basically, um, you know, I, I I started in BI, right? Which is great because you basically you're you're giving the company the rearview mirror which to look and see how they did, right? And that's what basically got me into doing data integrations because that's basically the process which defines what you're going to do in the future. So, um, you know, I've, I've implemented a number of like enterprise systems, ERPs, CRMs, and all sorts of stuff. And the real value that the business gets out of that isn't that they have some new shiny system that's a silo. It's that this system communicates with another system. And at a basic level, like you want like an order to flow through, right? That might be helpful if you've got like an e-store or you're generating opportunities in Salesforce. You want that to turn into something that you're, you know, you're going to ship somebody a product and you're going to get an invoice. So you can get some revenue. Um, so I really see like the front line for the data quality, like that, you know, the business intelligence team is looking for is those integrations. So um, that's why I always like to like, you know, be involved in that process up front. And it's really nice to have a team that's like, has all those functions underneath it because you can be involved in those initial steps where they're talking about bringing on this new system. You can be involved in hooking it up and thinking about how, okay, how are these external IDs and internal IDs, all these things going to work together. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's a natural fit that those things go together is one really empowers the other. Awesome. Liz, I see you nodding away there in the corner. Have you got anything to add to that? Absolutely. The The integration pieces are the hard part and the rewarding part. And I think that's a lot of what, as a collective and broad trans industry group, we are going to be seeing more and more of, is it's not about delivering pockets of data faster. It's not about getting individual work streams or functions to deliver data faster, because I feel like a lot of those insights, a lot of those solutions have been done. The really rewarding and transformational stuff are slaying the data silos, as I say again and again, or really figuring out how to connect really divergent data sets. Even if the end users or the analysts don't find anything completely revolutionary with the data, they have it. We can explore those hypotheses. And especially as someone coming at this from the energy transition, which really is a crisis affecting every single person on the planet, Having access to data to at least explore in different ways is a foundational element in how we're going to address it. Awesome. Thanks for that, Liz. Um, Chitanya, have you got anything to add to that or? Uh, yeah, no, I, I um, agree with both Matt and Liz. I, I think that was very nicely put. Um, the um, only thing I would add to that, I, I think from sort of my industry perspective from a, a biopharma angle, uh, connecting these systems also adds a level of automation. Um, so that reduces human error when you're transferring or shuttling data from one system to the next. Uh, so especially from uh, a research lab perspective where we have folks moving transparent chemicals um, from one tube to the next and then copying data with a USB drive from one instrument and walking over, walking it over, I think there are uh, infinite possibilities of where things can go wrong. Um, and once we integrate and automate these systems, it uh, increases productivity uh, as well as reduces the chances of making mistakes. Awesome. Thanks, Chitanya. 
Um, so we're going to move on to Matt's second uh, second point, which was business and operational symptoms of data engineering technical debt within an organization. Again, keen to keen to hear you delve into that one, Matt. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm working at a number of different places, it's it's the symptoms are a little bit odd, right? Because the business leaders don't necessarily understand the technical piece, right? Like someone who's really good at sales, they're, they're not thinking about like, okay, how is our CRM hooked up to our data warehouse and, you know, the reports that I get, right? That's not their top of mind. They're focused on sales, right? So I think what we end up seeing is that this is where you get that kind of that shadow IT coming in where it's like, okay, their logical solution is, well, the reporting's wrong. And they're like, well, okay, I could hire someone under my budget, under sales, that's going to work on X. But it's like, okay, well, that's now a cost to the rest of the business of like, okay, they're doing this in a silo. The centralized function of IT, which, you know, has the best intentions, now doesn't have access to what they're doing, right? And it's like, really for these things to be successful or to be integrated, they have to have that central function. And like you see it with the, the with that that kind of the growth of shadow IT. What what is what is everyone else thinking? Liz, have you got any any thoughts on that one? Oh, I always have thoughts, especially <laughs> about shadow IT. And the thing that gets me about these parallel systems is that or these secret projects that someone's spending their nights and weekends on or things that are happening that you don't know about is they all start with the best or the vast majority start with the best of intentions. Someone doesn't have an easy way to maybe get access to development resources. So they decide to do something about it themselves. And especially if you're in startup land, that's the kind of entrepreneurial mindset you absolutely need. Now, if you are an enterprise architect trying to figure out what the complete lay of the land looks like, it is a real big challenge. Um, or if you're even trying to modernize and move to the cloud, it can be a really big challenge because there's programs run on laptops underneath developers' desks. And I think if anyone has a surefire way to fix that, I would I would absolutely be keen because it presents such a security and scalability concern while at the same time in many ways represents some great cultural, some individuals with great cultural drives to make the world and the data a better place. That was a, sorry, Matt. That was not an answer. That was it. That was sympathy and empathy and acknowledgement. Well, I mean, I can't be too hard on this because it's like technically that's how I actually started my career in the business intelligence space was starting like shadow IT at Boeing for production scheduling, right? Where I, I wasn't part of IT, I wasn't part of that, but I was sitting with like the buyer planners, and they're like, "We've got all these like enterprise systems. I, we want to see what we're building." And like, I started with Excel and obviously it's, you know, I'm now in the tool sets that I'd love to use now, but it's like, that's where I got my start. I see the business, the, I see where they're coming from, but it's like from the ultimate, like scalable solution to go from that startup to that mid-sized business, to that enterprise, at some point you have to jettison that behavior and it does have to become centralized, right? Because you're not going to be able to scale these like silos and it becomes like, you know, they, they say code is self, you know, it, it tells you what it's doing, self-documenting. That's not the case, <laughs> right? <laughs> especially where you got these like really obscure like processes, especially with data. Cause it's like, okay, 
what data set are you using? What are you filtering? What are you removing? What are you changing? And the only way to manage some of those things is centrally. Now I'm thinking back to all the times I didn't know any better and used Excel as like a system of record for something or treated it like an actual database. The damage I have done with VLOOKUPs before I even knew about index matches is enough to just go hang my head in shame. <laughs> I, I hope you were uh, cautious enough to see it away from macros. <laughs> I actually took an entire class in grad school about how to use VBA to program subsurface redox flow models. <laughs> so like it was it was taught to me that this was the way to do things. Like in Excel, you have power, like Excel 2003, I think at the time, like all great power, great responsibility. This is how you do things. I don't consider myself to be that ancient, but they're completely outdated best practices that I've learned in the past 15 years, which is a great refresh. Hey, you know, it, when I started, if pandas had existed, you know, I would have used it, right? But it's right? like, I got the exact same start. It was like, okay, you're going to use Excel. You're going to do VBA. You're going to do access, like whatever. It's like, okay, no, these are actually, this is not something that you can build upon. It's not a good foundation to the home of the data engineering program. And it's like, Unfortunately, the Excel spreadsheets are never going to go away because the business is just like, you know, maybe it's upgraded to Google Sheets. I guess that's progress. <laughs> but, you know, um, it's just these aren't databases. They don't enforce business logic. They don't enforce any of those things that you need to be able to trust what's in there. Bagar, Chitanya, has any, either of you guys got anything to add to that? Yeah, I'm over here suffering from PTSD from this conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think kind of what I'm getting from this is like, I feel like we're all in the same boat around what we were taught when we were in, uh, yeah, I don't want to age anyone, but whenever we all were in our respective schooling is not the same as the technology that we're using today. And so it's like, it's a testament, I think, to anyone who's in this industry, who's able to keep up with all of this and how quickly evolving the the tools we're working with, the concepts that are coming out, what's relevant yesterday is completely irrelevant tomorrow. Um, it is, it's really difficult to, to keep up and you have to be willing, I think, to be successful in the data engineering industry. You have to be willing to invest a lot of time uh, being a student of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, has anything, anyone got any, anything to add, add, add to this? Or have we, have we, have we definitely covered it all? <laughs> I, I mean, just look at like ethernet and networking, right? Like, you know, within less than a generation of the people that have been in the workforce, we've gone from like 10 megabit half duplex to like, you know, now in a data center, you can get a hundred gigabit between two different systems. Like the problems that we have to solve and what we're able to use in terms of tools and techniques has like completely been changed. And I imagine it's going to get completely changed, you know, in the next 10 years. So, you know, that's just a testament. If you're in this industry and you, 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 you will, you're willing to hack it out, like, okay, this is the sort of progress that you can kind of expect. I think it was in the 80s or 90s where it would take like 15 days to spin up a set of instances in a data center. 
And today, earlier today, we were complaining about a few seconds for an EC2 instance in AWS. So the other takeaway here is we're all spoiled as well. Or just change your availability zone and they'll probably spin up faster. Yeah. Depending. Uh, to that point too, though, kind of connecting some of these threads, one thing that we've done with our data engineering teams is when we have complex problems like needing to resolve global fast gas models, the traditional workflows in Python have taken hours and I have an amazing engineering group in my team that have rewritten them in Rust. So they're taking minutes, if not seconds. And that is also a great way to incentivize getting new talent in the door. There's so many engineers looking to expand into the Rust estate. Rust also has, you know, 98% fewer carbon emissions than Python. So it helps from a holistic sustainability POV, but it's really cool. And it's a way to also optimize performance while optimizing for cool factor. Uh, uh, sort of a follow-up question to, uh, to Liz then, uh, how would you uh, balance delivering to the business uh, versus innovation uh, and spending time on innovation then? Oh, it's so tricky. So something I've shamelessly leveraged from my time as an architect at AWS is we had 10% development time to sh sharpen the saw. It went along with one of the leadership principles and everyone ubiquitous on my team, we have 10% development time. Not Friday afternoon when you're not paying attention, but like let's block out a day every other week or we've done hackathons where we actually block out time, bring resources in-house and look at some of these big problems. So to me, it's making a concerted effort, celebrating failures that goes along with that because not every innovative idea is gonna be good but making it a priority and then really celebrating when things go well in addition to when they go poorly. And that that has to start from the top because if you are doing innovation from the bottom, that is what leads to shadow IT, my friends. Very well said, I agree. Awesome, thanks Liz. Well, I think that's kind of, uh, unless anyone's got anything else to add, I think that's drawing us to a close now. Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you so much to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. Once again, our guests on today's podcast have been Sagar Suri at Rapid7, Liz Dennett at Wood Mackenzie, Matt Noop at Owl Labs and Chitanya Panja at Sanofi. If you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Amy Clemson and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at amy.clemson at evolutionjobs.us or visit us at evolutionjobs.us. Thank you again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.